to cover Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, and I'm going to do my best to get through it all. But um, that's, a, that's a lot. I, keep think, I kept trying to figure out where I could piece out little pieces of it and make sense, and it just kept expanding. By the time I was done, I pretty well had the entire chapter, chapter of Judges laid before me. I thought, well, that's probably a little too much to cover in one morning. So I tried to whittle it all down and focus on Gideon. And um, one thing I want you guys to kind of get out of this message, one thing I did this morning, is to remember what the focus of the Bible is. And so when we're studying these stories, we're looking through Gideon, there's a lot of different things I was learning, reading some commentaries, was listening to some messages, was reading the Bible and things. And there's all different kinds of angles and things and, and stuff in there to learn. But when you step back, and let's start off by going over to Judges chapter 2. And this kind of helps set the tone. If you go to verse, chapter 2, verse 16 through 19, I'll read it. But it helps you put into perspective... Uh, what the purpose or what the goal or what a filter is that we should use when we read the book of Judges. How should we filter all these stories and all these, these things? I was talking, uh, uh, I think I already mentioned this at one point, but I was talking to Seth the other day and he was telling me, where I was encouraging him to where he was reading in the Bible and asking him. He says, I've been reading all over the Old Testament. I said, well, let's go read some of the Gospels or something in the New Testament. And he said, now, this is where me and him are very different. I love getting into the New Testament and reading. And I never would have said this, but he said, but Dad, it's so exciting in the Old Testament. There's like all these kings and stories and battles and stuff. And I thought, wow, I guess it is. You know, I mean, that, that's neat. I'm really glad that he thought that. But how do we filter all those exciting stories and all those, those battles? They aren't just there for, strictly for our entertainment. You know, God's got a purpose with everything He puts in the Bible. He records. There's a lot went on that didn't get recorded. So when He puts stuff in the Bible, there's a, there's a reason for it and a purpose. Amen. So let's read chapter 2, verse 16 to 19, and try to figure out what's the purpose of the book of Judges, or how can we filter it when we study these stories. It says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised, raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. That's kind of a summary of the book of Judges. What happens? Well, one of the first things God does is, is the book of Judges is He raises up these judges. It's, it's a story and we can focus on the whole Bible this way. Every story in the Bible, if we look at the story in the Bible and try to look at us or the people, we've missed the concept of the Bible. The Bible constantly and consistently points to God. Everything we read, we should learn something about God. It does teach us things about us and how God interacts with us, how we get along in the world. But ultimately, the overriding theme and story of the Bible is God. God, God who He is, God how He acts, God what He does, 
uh, just all the characteristics, everything's about God. And in this, is, it says, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. So this book is about these men, these judges, but it's more specifically about God raising up these judges. You know, the, there, nothing was special about these men in, in this book that were raised up to be judges, except for the fact that God raised them up. So we know that God raises up judges, but it also says why he raised up these judges. A big overriding theme of the book of Judges is these people would disobey God, they would fall into captivity or into oppression, and then God would deliver them. So these judges, well, a lot of times, at least I did early on in my Christianity, I'd hear about judges, hear stories, I'd always think of judges as kind of like kings or rulers or governors. No, gov judges were deliverers. That was the main goal of a judge, was God would raise them up to deliver his people from some type of oppression or persecution. And so when we look at the book of Judges, we can think God delivering. That's, if you really want to sum up that book, that's what it is. God delivering. God taking a man, or in one case, Deborah, a woman, and delivering his people. So we're going to filter all this, this thing through that. Another thing is, I want to add one more filter in here or one more thing in the New Testament. Go to Romans 3.23. Keep your hand in Judges because we're coming right back there. But everybody knows Romans 3.23, right? If you've done any got witnessing or sharing the gospel. I noticed something when I was studying this. And uh, at least for me, I've noticed it. I've never had before. Where it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all know that, right? We've heard that scripture a million times. 24 said this, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you flip that around, that being almost flips the whole statement around. We were justified freely by His grace, and we continue to sin. Jesus already justified us, delivered us, set us free, and we still sin. That, that, that sin... Wasn't all, wasn't only something that came before Jesus delivered them. It was something that came after. The, the reason I said it is, if you go back to this book of Judges, what does it say? They were in oppression. God delivered them, and what did they do? Did they just say, "Oh, wonderful! God delivered us. We're never walking away from Him again." What was the immediate response? Many times, the moment the judge died, well, it says this. It really uses a, a really bad explanation. I mean. Uh, Terrible explanation. It says, And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves before them. And down in verse 19 it says, And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves. Just like in Romans 3.23 it said, All have sinned, already being justified. You know, this is a great story not only about the, the Israelites, but about us. We did that. How many of us not, not even, I'm not just talking before salvation, after salvation. God saved us, justified us, delivered us. And how many of us had these um, physical, material testimonies of, of an actual physical deliverance from something? And we still return to sin. And we've all been set free from the, 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 the wages of sin the death, we've all been set free from this and we still return to sin again, even after He's delivered us. 
It's really amazing. We can look back and say, wow, how can they do this? But we do the same thing. So these judges were deliverers. And as we go to study Gideon, what we need to think of, a lot of times we think of Gideon, this big warrior. You know, his, his name talks about a warrior, this big mighty guy. But really he was a deliverer is what he was. And God used him to deliver. So let's go to chapter 6. And let's just read. We'll read down through verse 40, basically the entire chapter. And I'll see how far we can get through this and study a little bit about Gideon. And in the end, I want us to learn a little bit about God and how he used Gideon by studying this. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. <clears throat> and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains, the caves, and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. So, just to set the stage for what we're going to learn, what's going on there? Does anybody catch so far what's going on? They, they weren't just oppressed, but yeah, they were coming in, camping, and it says with their cattle, with their, with their sheep, with their oxen, they were coming in, and they were without number. And about the time they would sow their, all their crops and get everything growing, they'd come in and just decimate them. Back there. They would just wipe them out. And it would just destroy them. And so it left these Israelites not only in captivity. It'd be bad enough to know that you were held in captivity. But, but they were distressed. They were, they were just really messed up. Their lives were just a mess. Every time that you would go out and try to do something well, the enemy would come in and destroy whatever they were trying to do. That happens to us a lot nowadays, doesn't it? But what was the result of that? If you look back here, in verse 1, how did they end up in this situation? They did evil, but did they put themselves in that situation really? No, they did evil, but it says God delivered them into the hand of the Midianites. They were there because He wanted them to be there. God wasn't up in heaven going, Oh man, they got themselves caught again and they're being oppressed. This is terrible. I've lost control of my people and now they're oppressed. No, God, God delivered them. He used the Midianites to oppress them. And in verse 6, we see what the reason was. What was the reason? If we're focusing on God through this whole story, it's all about God. It's not about His people. God wanted to do what? cause His people to call to Him. God wanted His people to call to Him and to stop doing bad. So the purpose of God was, He said, okay, I'll use oppression, I'll use persecution, I'll use these people to cause you to call out to Me. And what was the first thing He did then? It says, and it came to pass in verse 7, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, 
I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the God of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. God's getting ready. We know the story of Gideon. He's getting ready to deliver him, right? We've already told you that Gideon's coming to deliver. But what does God do before he delivers? Remember this verse up here? We've been going every single Sunday. You see this taking place right here before your eyes in the Old Testament. God is a what? He's a just God. So he's not going to let his people just do wrong and let them go. But he's also a savior. He wants to deliver them. What's the first thing he do? He sends a prophet. What does a prophet call people to do? Repent. So God, the first thing he does is they cried out to the Lord and then he sends a prophet. Very first thing, we see repentance right there in the beginning of the story. We can see the gospel being played out in the life of Gideon. God wants to deliver his people. He calls them to repentance. Then when we come down here, it says, and then what came? Verse 11, and then there came an angel of the Lord. The second part of it, this part that's coming to prepare Gideon to be a deliverer, the angel of the Lord, and sat under an oak tree which was in Ophrah that pertained to Joash, the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thy mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us unto the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? <clears throat> when the angel is sent, where does he find Gideon? Gideon was not a great man, was he? What, do you guys know what he was doing? Did you catch anybody that studied the story? What was Gideon doing? I love to hear people tell me. You preach back to me. Tell me what's He was hiding. He was hiding. Why? He was trying to brush the wheat. Exactly, yeah. He was hiding because what was the Midianites doing? They were coming and taking everything they had. So he grabs and takes some wheat, goes and he hides in this wine press. I've, I've heard them said these were like these little rooms, these big round rooms where they go in and press these. It was almost like this big rock hideout. It wasn't like a little wine press. You see this little thing where he was standing on top of it, hiding or threshing wheat out in the open. He was hiding where nobody could find him, and he was threshing this wheat. And, the, and what was the, this is what, this has always been uh, comical to me, I guess, or funny. And maybe it shouldn't be, but it's just hilarious to me when I read this. Here's Gideon hiding from these people that are oppressing him. And if you read later, you'll, you, you, as we read down, you'll see what Gideon's mentality is. He's like, we're being oppressed. We're being defeated. I'm from this little family. I'm nobody. I'm hiding in the wine press. And how does the angel address him? Great man of valor. Yeah, mighty man of valor. If I would have found him, the last thing I would have thought of is a mighty man of valor. Hiding in a wine press, threshing his wheat. Remember what our focus is here. Is our focus on man or is it on God? What did that angel know that, that Gideon didn't know, that the, anybody living up to this point didn't know? They didn't know what God was about to do. Was he a mighty man of valor? 
With God's help, he will be. But at this point, he sure didn't look like it, did he? If we look at this and focus on Gideon in this story, and if Gideon would have focused on himself, imagine him sitting there hiding, threshing wheat, and the angel shows up. Mighty man of valor! I mean, <laughs> that's why it's so funny. I think of him, and I'm sure he's looking around. Who, who you look, you know? Who? <laughs> it's just, I don't know, it's just hilarious to me to think. But it also teaches a great lesson. When God calls out to you, when God calls to you, He doesn't call you for who you are, right? Or what's going on. He calls you for who He can make you to be. Amen. That's encouraging how He can use you. When God speaks to you, everybody in this room, everybody you know could look at you and say, that person is good for nothing. Or that person, there's, they can't do that. You, know, you, you think you're going to do something. There, there's no way that person can do that. But when God comes to you and He calls you and he, he speaks to you and He calls you to do something, can you do it? You can guarantee you can with His power. And look at this in verse 14 is another great thing because He's getting ready. This is all in preparation. The angel's coming to deliver their people and He's preparing Gideon now. And He says this, The Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might. Go in this thy might. I'm saying, what, what might in this guy that's hiding out in, in, in fear and oppression? Where's my might? I have no strength. Where's his might? At the end of the verse is where his might is. Where does your strength come from? You know, all of us fail and, and we, we struggle and we doubt ourselves. And God says, go in this thy might. But what's his might? The very end of the verse says what? Have not I sent thee? If God sends you, that's the might you're going to have. Get a sure word from the Lord. A guarantee that God sends you to go somewhere, to do something, to serve Him, to follow Him. Nothing is going to be able to, to, to hamper you or stop you. Another backside to that is, if you're getting ready to go out and serve the Lord and to do something, get a sure word from the Lord. Amen. Because once you get it, nothing can stop you. That goes all the way from, from serving Him all the way down to salvation. The day you get saved, if you're dealing with somebody and sharing the gospel, make sure they understand it. Make sure they get a sure word from the Lord. They really co comprehend what they're doing. And then once God gives them that sure word and calls them and sends them, is anything going to be able to turn them back? And there's nothing going to stop them. They will become this mighty man of valor that he was talking about. It has nothing to do with Gideon. I love this story because it has nothing to do with him. Right. He's this man hiding out in a wine press and has everything to do with, God says, I want to deliver my people. Well, here's a guy right here. Nobody's going to expect him. I'm going to use him. It's all about God. Let's, get, let's read on verse 15 to 32. And here's what Gideon says. It's in, this, in this section here, it's almost like a, uh, if you notice a flip-flop back and forth, it's almost like Gideon's kind of in turmoil here, which you could imagine. If you got called by God, all of a sudden God says, go do this. It would almost put you in a little bit of turmoil because you're not sure. Can I do this? Is God going to be with me? And, and you see this flip-flop of a focus on God and Gideon, on God and Gideon, or God and man. And let's read down through here and see, watch this flip-flop and see where it ends up. Verse 15, And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? 
Who's he focusing back on again? Back to Gideon. Back, how, what? How am I going to do this? <clears throat> behold. Does he say, behold, my family is mighty in Manasseh. I'm a, white, I'm a great man. My father's house is great and mighty and rich and wealthy. No, he says, behold, my family is poor in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. So I come from this poor, worthless family, and I'm the least of the poor, worthless family. That's why I'm hiding out in a thresher with this little bit of wheat. I'm nothing. Focus on me. And the Lord flipped it back. Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. God is so patient. He doesn't just look at him and say, you idiot. I just got done telling you. I'm going with you. I'm sending you. Go in might. No, he doesn't say that, does he? God is so much more kind and patient and loving than we are. Maybe we can learn from God. He says, I will be with thee. Focus back on God. And he said unto him, Gideon, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Back to Gideon. He just said, I'm going to send you. But well, okay, if I found grace, then, then maybe if, if, if I'm good enough, if I, I found grace, you'll, 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 you'll show me a sign. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. You see a shift in Gideon there a little bit. He says, you know, it's focus on me, but then he says, just wait here, God. I'm going to come right back and I'm going to, what he ends up doing is offering a sacrifice to him. He's, the focus is back on God here. Gideon went in, made ready a kid, and unleavened cakes, and an ephah of flour, and put, he put it in a basket. In flesh, he put in a basket. And he put the broth in a pot, and brought it out to him under the yoke, and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and unleavened cakes, and lay them upon this rock, and pour out the broth. And he did so. God is preparing Gideon. Remember, this part of the Scripture, God's preparing Gideon. What is He preparing him? What, what is something God may do to you to prepare you to go serve Him? Gideon, or God told Gideon to do something. And did He do it? And He did it. He tried him in this little... It's a, a real simple. It's a very simple obedience, but it was a small act of obedience. I think you know, David's sitting back there. He shared your testimony... I don't know, a while back and said, I just feel like God told me just to start talking about God. It was a very small act of obedience at work. Just, just start talking about God. He didn't say I had to go in and, you know, preach a message everywhere I went. Just start talking about God. He says, just take out the flesh and, and the unloving cakes and lay it on there. And then what happens? And then God starts moving. He takes a little tiny bit act of obedience and he ends up moving. How many of us, I know in my own life, there's, there's been times of this. I, I can look back with huge regret knowing God told me to do one little thing and I came up with a million reasons why I shouldn't and I'll never know what I missed out on there. Never know. God's plan isn't going to fail. He, he's going to carry out His plan. But what did I miss out on in that whole plan? There was a small little act of obedience. But Gideon did it, right? He didn't say he questioned. He didn't say, should I do this? What do I do? He says, put it on the rocks and he did so. Just a simple statement. Perfect act of obedience. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Little act of obedience. And he got this huge confirmation of God's power and God's ability to work. 
Again, God's preparing Gideon right here. He's getting him ready. He acts. God <clears throat> carries, up, carries through. God shows him to be, himself to be faithful. Do you think Gideon, later on, and when God uses him, is going to remember, man, all I did was lay these cakes down in his flesh and step back, and he just touched it with his staff. Fire just consumed the whole thing. Do you think that's going to affect his obedience and his walk with God later on? So God used just a little act of obedience to show himself worthy to be praised and worthy to be honored and, and, and that he's powerful and he can do it. And so God's going to use this. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee. Fear not. Thou shalt not die. His focus kind of goes back on him for a second. But I, I believe that the, his, his answer here was, it was a good focus. His focus was no more on not what he couldn't do or who he was or who his family was. His focus all of it was who he was in relation to God. His focus became a healthy focus on himself here. And he says, I've been before God in the presence of God. And he says, don't fear, I'm with you. You're, you're not going to die. I'm about to deliver you. I'm about to use you. And in all this action and all this, this interaction with God, it produced worship in Gideon. It says, Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Oprah of the Abuserites. That name, Jehovah Shalom, showed some confidence. God came, he says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people, I'm going to set them free. And then he calls the place Jehovah Shalom. What's the name? What does that mean? God of what? Peace. God of peace. Does it seem like Gideon is getting to a point now where he trusts that God's actually going to deliver his people? Just a few verses earlier, right before this interaction, what was he saying? We're in oppression. I'm a lowly person. My family's the least among them. And then he builds an altar through all this that God showed himself faithful and powerful. And all of a sudden, his mindset shifts and it focuses on God. And that shift of his focus to God causes him to all of a sudden maybe start believing what God said, actually trusting that God knows what he's doing, and that despite who he is and, and what he knows of himself, God is still capable of carrying out his plan. And he calls it Jehovah Shalom. God has not delivered his people at this point. Yet Gideon claims that and realizes, yes, you're right, God. I worship you. You are the God of peace. And peace is going to be in this place. He, he accepts the word of God before it even happens. We can do the same thing. So, let's carry on down through here. And it came to pass, let's read, up, up, we'll go through 32. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut it down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God unto the top of this rock in the, in the ordered place. And take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou hast cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's household that the men of the city and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cast down that was by it, 
and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who had done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because, because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he hath called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. He asked him to do something else. He takes another step in this call on Gideon. And God says, let's ask you to do something else now. And what he does is real important. He's getting ready to deliver his people, but he does what before he, before he delivers them? He's taking care of Gideon, but when he's going to use for deliverance, right? He's dealt with his insecurities. He's proven himself to be faithful. He's proven that Gideon is going to obey him. Now he asks him for one more thing. Obey me in this. He says, now we got to get rid of all these idols and these, these evil things that are amongst us. What we see in here, I love the humanity in the Bible. It doesn't say Gideon just took off and ran up and started chopping up the idols. There's still a little bit of fear in Gideon in there. Because what does it say? He went at nighttime with ten guys because he was afraid. And he, he carried this out. He, he, he did what God asked him to do. There's still a little bit of fear in there. So God's still working on that. I love that, that, that we can see in the Bible real people. God using real people. I can see myself. God says, do this. And I do it. Say, wow, man, God's so awesome. And then he calls me to do something else. And I'm thinking, man, I can't wait. Give me something to do, God. And he gives me to do something to do, and I catch myself. I'm a little scared. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to move forward. And God helps me do it. And God is so amazing that He patiently walks with us. He walks with us. He helps us. He knows that we are frail. He just knows who we are. He knows what our insecurities, what our fears. He knows what we need. And He continues to walk with us and help us. He's preparing this guy to be the mighty man of valor that He called him to be back here. To do something really amazing. We all know the end story of Gideon. It's huge, amazing. Right here, it's not really that big a deal, but God still uses him, and he walks with him and patiently helps him. He says, do this, and go in obedience. He gives him the strength, but Gideon still kind of sneaks out at night. And what's the result of his obedience to God? We can learn something right here. When we obey God, especially when we obey God to start kind of messing with idols and things that people have in their lives, when our obedience, what, what's the result usually? What did these guys do? In the morning, they woke up, they found the, the idol tore down, they find the, the, the wood all cut up. What was their response? Kill him. Who did this? Gideon did it. Well, go kill him. When we obey, we need to accept the fact that there's going to be some resistance. There's going to be some people come after us. There's going to be some people call for hurt to us. It may be physical, it may be spiritual, emotional, we don't know. But we just need to realize when we obey God, we're going to get resistance. It's going to happen. But God is still the focus of the story, right? We get resistance. We get people coming after us because of our obedience. The best response is what? So what? God is still in control. He's going to take care of this. And I love, that's kind of what they said. What did Joash's dad come out and say? 
He says, really you are going to come and kill this man because he tore down Baal's altar. And you're saying Baal's a god, right? He's this big god. He's this big important thing. And you're going to go kill him because he tore down the altar. Y'all are nuts. What you need to do is just lay off. Hang out. Sit back. If Baal's really a god, and he's really this big, awesome, powerful thing, he'll take care of himself. Just let, 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 let Baal take care of it. And it's almost, I can just see him as a father. His son's over here and he says, listen, I got this. I'll take care of it. Y'all, leave him alone. All he did was what God told him to do. If this Baal's so amazing, my son will be dead. He'll take care of him. Don't worry. You're okay. He, he knows he's okay. That's how we need to respond to persecution and oppression. It's all about God. And if something happens to us, it's only because God let it happen. He's not, he's not going to let it get out of hand. Now let's keep reading on down through here. The Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. I love this verse again. Verse 34, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him. Here's this guy that was kind of fearful. Just, just not very long ago, he was real fearful. He was worried. He was concerned. He didn't think he could do it. He even snuck out at night to go carry out some obedience to God. And what was the change in him? There was a lot of things that happened. He saw God. He trusted God. He obeyed God. God followed through. There's a lot of things that happened. But there was one big thing in verse 34 that we see something happened that really made a difference in how Gideon responded. What happened? Spirit of the Lord. Isn't it amazing how God does this? We could read, it didn't say, and Gideon rose up in the morning and blew the trumpet. Or and Gideon realized that he was a mighty man of valor and he blew the trumpet. Or Gideon said, bring all the men to me. We've taken down the altar of Baal. We're going to go conquer the Midianites. Now it says what? The Spirit of the Lord. The focus always keeps going back to God, the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew the trumpet. You know what we can learn out of that? Is when we do great things, when we do obey God and great, he uses us for amazing, wonderful things. Who did it? We have no right to get all standing around going, well, look what I did. God used me. I'm going to blow the trumpet. I'm amazing. I'm great. No. It's all God. The only reason he was able to stand up and be courageous and strong and say, he's blowing the trumpet to gather all the people together to go to battle against the Midianites. The only reason he could do that is the Spirit of the Lord. The only difference between Gideon over here when we first meet him and Gideon right here now there's a lot of stuff that went on, but the true difference is the Spirit of the Lord. When the Spirit of the Lord consumes you and you allow the Spirit of the Lord, we talk about uh, relationship and fellowship. You're walking in fellowship with God and the Spirit of the Lord is on you. You can now be victorious. You can now be, you can be strong and courageous. You can go and do things and say things and, and live in a way that you never thought possible before. And you can do it in humility, knowing that it's only the Spirit of the Lord. <coughs> Well, we've only got two more chapters to go. <laughs> so, let me go get lunch. and No, the second half is going to go much quicker because we know what happens. Uh, go to verse 36 here. He sent messengers out 
And they went to gather all the people. In verse 36, Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the floor. This is that story we all hear about Gideon putting a fleece out. But wait a second, in verse 34, didn't I just get done telling you, Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. He's ready to go to battle, right? He's this big, mighty man of valor now. and The Spirit of the Lord has taken over. And what do we see here? Not so much a doubt, but I want some confirmation, God. Does he really need confirmation? We can look in, 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 in hindsight, we can look and say, does he really need confirmation? I mean, come on. Look at what... If you saw... <clears throat> Pastor Lindsay came in, put bread and beef on the thing there, and somebody walked up with a stick, and it blew up in fire. There's a lot of confirmation going on there, don't you think? There's a lot of stuff. I mean, you're, you're treading wheat, and an angel, an angel shows up and talks to you. You know this is an angel. What, confirm, what more confirmation does he need? That's focusing on Gideon again. Let's put the focus back on God. And what do we learn from this? How patient and loving and kind, again, is God. He says, Gideon, you know what? I know what I'm about to do. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing for God here. I know what I'm about to do. I know what's going to happen. I know that I'm about to call you. Remember the story. You all know the story. We're going to get there. I'm about to call you to do something just nuts. It just doesn't makes no sense at all. So I'm going to lovingly, kindly give you a little more assurance. Did he need it? No. Did God look at him and say, Okay, Gideon, if you really need this, I'll do it. No, he says, Okay. And, and so he puts this fleece out, and he does it two different ways, and, and God carries through, and he confirms one more time, kindly, patiently, lovingly, that God has called him. God has sent him. I'm really glad we have a God like this because there's been many times where I've sat out. I remember moving to Haiti. I'm, I'm telling you, as much as blowing up that thing on fire, the, the, the sacrifice on fire, that's how, how much confirmation we had to go into Haiti. I mean, it was, we, you couldn't have, blowing up fire on a rock wouldn't have been any more than the confirmation we had to go to Haiti. But there was days when I got there and I'd go hide in my bananas and sit there and go, you know, I wanted to put a fleece out or something. God, what are you thinking? Are you sure? Have any of you done that? Is there anything in your lives God says, do this? You're like, yeah. Come on, God. Are you sure? You know, I told you, right? He doesn't look at us and say, do it. I told you. You, were, you, you told everybody. The Lord told me to do this. He doesn't remind us of that. He says, okay, I'll lovingly give you some more confirmation here. He'll, he'll do that the rest of our lives, won't he? Every time we go to him and say, God, help me. Remember in the New Testament there was a man that said that? Lord, give me faith where I don't have the faith. Help me. God will just con continually build our faith and build our faith. And I love that when we look at that and we can learn more about who God is. He loves us. He, he's, he's compassionate. He's kind. And he ultimately wants to carry out his plan. And so he's going to use Gideon. He's going to do whatever it takes to prepare him and lovingly do it. So you get a little bit of doubt about what, God, what God's called you to do or your walk with Him? Stop and say, okay, God, come on. I'm at a point. I know you've told me to do this. Can you confirm it again? Just in my heart. Give me some peace. So after he does that, in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, Then Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, 
and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves, saying, Mine own hath has saved me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Does anybody know that verse? For it is by grace you are saved. It's a gift of God. Not of... It's a gift of God, not by... Lest any man should... What's he say here? And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me. Vaunt? I don't know what this is up there. Lest Israel... Yeah, it does say that. It says boast. Lest Israel boast and says, Look what we did. Again, God's focus is not on the people, but on Him, even in our salvation. God knows what He's doing. If He made salvation a works-based thing, I know me, if I could have a list and was able to check off all the lists that guaranteed salvation, once I got that list done, you wouldn't want to be near me. I would be so full of pride, I would stink. God knows that that's how we are. Ultimately, the bigger picture is He knows we can't do it. But if we could... We would be so full of ourselves, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near us. And what else would we be? Have you ever been around people that get very legalistic in their lifestyles? They think they can actually do it? God knows us so well. What happens to that person when somebody... What happens to the Pharisees, the Sadducees? Do they walk around and say, I did so great? You can too. Let me tell you how to become great like me. Do they do that? Not really. Most of the time what they do is this. I did so great, why aren't you? Look how great I am. You need to be great like me. You're failing in your areas that I have not failed in. That's what happens when we get these checklists and we get these boastings kind of thing. We, we immediately begin to tell everybody else how terrible they are because look at what I've done. God knows, how, God knows us so well. I mean, obviously he created us. <clears throat> so he says, way too many people. If you guys conquer the Israelites or the Midianites right now, it's all going to be, you're going to look at us. We've gathered a huge army together and we're going to boast. He doesn't want that to happen. And so he says, therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fear fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 20 and 2,000 and there remained 10,000. Thank God would say, okay, that's good. Now he says, and there's yet too many. So take them down even more. He ultimately gets down to, does anybody remember how many people he gets down to? 300 people, right? 300 men that are going to fight. And so then God well arms them with pots and candles, torches, and trumpets. So it's a well-prepared you know, well army. Ready to go out, what's that? Shock and awe. <laughs> yeah, shock and awe. It's exactly what it is, kind of. But uh, without the firepower... But <laughs> It kind of reminds me of Joe's conversation this morning. It was like they had some bagpipes. He said the bagpipes were used to scare people in war and stuff. These guys, this was the early version of the bagpipe warfare here that God is ready to use. But God's taking these people, and again, the focus always is going back to God, 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 His glory. 
God, his victory, his people, it's all his deliverance. Nobody can look back and say, Gideon, what a mighty, mighty warrior he was. What a great military strategist he is. He came up with this great plan to bring all these people together and flank them here and go here and do this. No, Gideon would have been looked at as quite a fool, really, admitted military strategy. I don't know a lot about military strategy, but I'm guessing that he would do that. So it says, not by works. There's another verse in, in Psalms chapter 20, verse 7. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love it. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Why? Because those that trust in chariots and horses, it's just going to create a lot of pride and boastfulness in themselves. And ultimately, we know we can't do it. We trust in who? God wants us to trust in. In Him. He's going to remove everything and get to the point where they trust only in Him. And if we carry out down through this, we know what happens. He, he, raises, he takes them down to 300. They take these pots. They put flames inside of them. And then they go out and they surround the camp. And then all at once they break the lamps open, blow the trumpets, and shout, The sword of the Lord and Gideon! And these Midianites, it says, there were so many of them. And let's go down to that verse here. It says, and the three companies blew, or I'm sorry, verse 20 of chapter 7. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the host ran and cried and fled. Now, again, I love using imagination reading the Bible. Because here's these mighty men. That, what have they been doing to them? They've been terrorizing them. They've been, you know, when somebody's really strong and they got a bunch of armies, think of the playground bully. They just laugh in your face and kick sand on you and beat you down. I was the one getting beat up, I think, most of the time. And, and, and they, they just terrorize you, don't they? They're not kind to you at all. And they're always they're bragging and tough and look how great I am. All these warriors, and they got this huge camp, and they're destroying Israelites. And they come out, 300 of them, break their lamps, blow their trumpets, and shout. And it says they run around in circles and they cry. There's a bunch of these big, strong men. I have to believe they're not just yelling out, crying. It's like screaming. I believe they're like crying. Oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. I just picture these big, strong men running around crying like little babies. They're going to die. You know, running in circles. That's just so wonderful to think about what God does in our life. The devil, he's full of himself. He, he's, he, he, he gets us. He gets us sucked into temptation and sin, and he oppresses us and destroys us. He gets us emotionally drained and depressed. He gets us frustrated. He gets us bickering with each other, and then he sits back and laughs. He's all bragging, look what I did. I just destroyed him. I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. Look how great I am. I'm the devil. I'm amazing. You know, I, mean, I got nothing to worry about. And then God does something, breaks the glass takes over, and God destroys him. And I can just picture the devil in our lives. When God gives us victory, delivers us from something. Think about the day a person gets saved. They've been tormented their whole lives. God sets them free. And the devil's over in the corner running around like a little baby crying. Ah, God, I've been defeated. I can't take him anymore. Think about when um, Legion in the Gospels... What did they do? They were causing this man to cut themselves and beat themselves and break chains and live in the graves. And God comes in on the scene and he delivers them. And what, what happens to the devil? He's some big 
big bad enemy anymore. No, he begs the begs God to send him out. Goes into the pigs and they run off the hill and kill themselves. That's what, that, that's what happens when the Lord shows up. The enemy is just turned into little babies running around crying. Remember that in your own lives. When we're struggling, when we're being oppressed and defeated, we turn to God and let Him take over, and He's going to turn that enemy into just a little baby over in the corner running around crying. And even more than that, how did they win eventually? And the 300 blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the hosts, and the hosts fled to Bereshitah and Zeroth, and to the border of, I have no idea how to say that, I've tried so many times, Ebomelohula, and Tabith. I've tried, I'm never going to get it. But he sent these men doing what? Again, who does he want to get the glory for this victory? Gideon and the Israelites? No. These people not only ride around crying like little babies, then they started killing each other. It's, it's not that they chose to do it. What does it say? The Lord turned their swords on one another. They killed each other. Isn't that awesome? That's exciting to me. God took these people who were being oppressed by this mighty army and started making them kill each other while they're crying, running around like little babies. I love it. That's how powerful and amazing God is. There is zero boasting for Gideon and his people. And as you read on down through here, they end up chasing them. There's some really interesting... Go back here on your own sometime and read about what Gideon did with the man of Succoth and Penel. It's, it's really kind of comical to me. Um, but go read what he did to them. But he ends up chasing these kings out, and he ends up catching them. And in verse... 18 of chapter 8, Gideon catches up with these kings. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. And he said, They were my brethren, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, liveth if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, Up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. What did he do? He caught these kings, and he found out that they had killed some of his own countrymen, his own brethren. And he looked at his son, and he said, kill him. His son said, whoa, I'm, I'm scared he didn't do it. Then Zeba and Zelmona said, they started taunting him. They said, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and slew Zeba and Zelmuna and took away the ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Men, it's a great lesson right here for us. Let's take our kids into battle, spiritually speaking. We're not going to go out and start witnessing the street killing people in front of them, but spiritually, right? When we have struggles and things in our lives and in our families, First thing he did was he gave his son a chance to do it. As men, let's give our sons a chance to stand up and serve the Lord. Let's give them a chance to stand up. And I'm not talking about this whole bragging, let's go be big, tough guy, warrior men. No, I'm talking about spiritually. Let's teach them how to prepare and serve God. I think spiritually. Let's teach them when there's struggles going on so how to stand up and defeat the enemy. And let's also recognize the fact that, you know, they may not be able to do it. They may have to say, I want to do that, Dad, but I can't. And say, all right, let me show you how. And let me step up and do it. And you watch. 
What a great thing. The kid, he gave his son a chance. The son couldn't do it. And then he stepped up and showed him how. Man, there's a lesson we can teach an entire right there. Just stop right there and just move on for us men on how to live as dads and fathers. Let's give our sons chances to step up and fight some battles, spiritually speaking. Set them a chance to serve the Lord. And then when they can't do it, instead of saying, he could have turned around and get up there and do it, I told you to do it. You know, or treat him mean, or he could have, you, you, you stupid kid, why can't you go up and do that? No, he doesn't do that. He just steps up and shows him how to do it. Sets the example. You think his son's going to remember that? Oh, he, most definitely his son's never going to forget that day. That was a marker in his life. Let's set some of these type of things in our lives with our kids. And so right after that, the men of Israel in verse 22 said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's sons also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of, the Midi of Midian. See, again, let's learn about God. I would think God at this point would be going, All this, and you turn around and say, Gideon delivered you from the hand of Midianites. You rule over us. Again, we can look back and say, stupid people, we do the same kind of things. But God doesn't, and neither does Gideon. Gideon has matured right here. He's been through some situations. He's been with God. He's walked with Him. He's learned some things. He's learned that it's not Him. It's all God. And what is His response? Wonderful. Great response. You ever serve God, and you do something amazing, and God uses you, a big thing breaks out, and people want to give you credit? This is a great response right here. Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you. Neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Where does he turn the focus? Man, you can't get out of this book without seeing God constantly just taking your head. Look at God. Look at God. Look at God. Look at God. Every time people try to look at themselves or at each other, look back at God. He says, no. No, listen. I didn't do anything. All I did was hide out. God picked me. I obeyed him. And he delivered you. That's it. I am nothing. I'm not going to rule over you, and I'm definitely not going to let my son slip into that trap of thinking he's something special. Let the Lord rule over you. And so he, he allows God to be the ruler. And then Gideon, near the end of his life, it's, it, it's, it's almost like you hate to end on this on this point of his life, but he makes some mistakes after all of this. If you go down to verse 30, go to verse 29. We finished up and we're going to kind of wrap up the life of Gideon. And it says this, And Drubbabel, Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had three score and ten sons of his, of his body begotten, for he had many wives. Snake number one. And his concubine, that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name is called Abimelech, the snake number two. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the sepulcher of Joash's father and Oprah of the Abizarites. And it came to pass as soon as, think of those three words. Remember what we said about in chapter two at the very beginning of Judges? And it came to pass as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel turned again and went a whoring after Balaam, and made Belbereth their God. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. 
Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jeroboam, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. Isn't that sad ending to such a great thing? There's a focus here. Gideon had many wives, and he also went and got this concubine from Shechem, a Canaanite area. His focus got off of God, obviously. Because what did he start focusing on? Me and all my wives and all my family and all my things. And he ran off after. My only estimation, knowing men, is that she was probably some pretty girl walking by from another city. And he said, well, i got to have her too. And he brought her in. And if you know the story, if you want to read on in chapter 9, Abimelech ends up, his son Abimelech, from this Canaanite woman, ends up coming and murdering all of Gideon's children except for the youngest. After all this, think about this great family he could have built up. And he's even saying, no, don't make me a ruler. I'm nobody. Just serve God. Follow Him. And he gets caught up in this in the very end of his story. Such a sad note. His son, from an illegitimate woman, turns around and murders all of his children. Wipes his family out, basically. Completely destroys his family line. After all this. You know, something, when I was reading that, I was thinking, what, why, what happened? What's going on here? You know, there had to be a point where Gideon kind of sat back and just said, well, you know, God used me, so now I'm going to coast off into eternity. You know, God isn't done with us until the day we die. We've got to continue seeking Him, continue walking with Him, continue looking for ways to serve Him. I'll tell you, I don't know how many, this is one, put it, put it on me. It's a huge fear I have because I've heard this said so many times. I remember when I went on a mission trip. I remember when I went sharing the gospel door to door. I remember when I, I remember when you hear that in Christian circles a lot. Especially when you've lived in Haiti and come back and tell somebody about, yeah, I lived in Haiti. And say, oh, yeah, I did. I did. I went. I, there's a lot of past Christian experience in the Christian world. I love this congregation because we get up every Sunday and there's fresh testimony. Every Sunday there's testimony. What's God doing? How's God using you? What's He doing in your life? How's He working? It's, it's constant. You are never too old. I've shared this testimony with some of you. I think I've shared it with my grandma. It's, it, she's a perfect example of this. You're never... Don't stop serving God. Don't, don't just sit back and rest on a previous battle. A previous thing. She, she is at a point where her life was severe depression. Couldn't even function in assisted living after Grandpa died. And you would have thought, kind of like Gideon here, just, you know, really she's good for nothing. If you just look at the way her life is, even though we know better than that, God is so miraculously, it, it, it would, if I could share the whole testimony, it would blow your mind. But he's changed her life and, and brought her back around, encouraged her, ministered to her, helped her get over her loss and some of those things. And now she's living in a community with my aunt and uncle in Florida. And she's, she's two things now. She became our family missionary. She's grandma. She's got nobody to live with. She doesn't have a home. So she just stays with all the, all the family. And we have a lot of unsaved families. So what does she do? She just goes there, teaches the grandkids the Bible, prays with them, shares the gospel. She's like a little missionary everywhere she goes to all the houses and tells me about all these people she's sharing the gospel with. Well, when grandma's in your house, you got to take her to church, right? So they get to go to church. It's amazing what God's doing. And then this community she's living in 
it's Florida and it's kind of a retirement community. A lot of people can't get out and do anything. And so she just walks around. She loves to walk, walks, walks, walks all the time. And she starts visiting all these people that are shut in their homes and can't get out. Prays with them, encourages them. There's some amazing testimony. This one woman uh, here recently, she claims that they've been healed through prayer with Grandma. Um, that's the only explanation they have. She had this really bad disease that was like killing her, and now she doesn't have it, and they don't know what's going on. And, and there's a testimony just because they spent time to pray. Well, I say all that to say, let's not let our, our past victories be the only experience we have in our Christian life. If you're still alive, I love this saying, that's mine I made up and it's probably nowhere in the Bible, but I say I'm totally immortal until God's done with me. Doesn't mean I can run around being an idiot, but until God's done with me, I'm immortal. And when He is done with me, I'm done. I'm going to go be with Him. So if I'm alive and I'm breathing, and you obviously are too because you hear me talking, man, God's got something for you, doesn't He? He's got something. When we were reading that story, we are thinking about this focus, though, of Gideon. And what did I say the focus of Judges was? Who? God's deliverance, right? Ultimately, the focus of the whole Bible. When I think about this and think about the New Testament, what's the focus of the whole Bible? God. What's the focus of our Christian life? God. Everything is about God. It all goes back to God. The moment we get this focus off of God and on us, on our circumstances, on things, we totally miss it. And we're going to mess it up. If we put the focus on us, we're going to mess it up. If we keep the focus on God, keep the focus on what He is, who He can do, then we'll do well. Go to Matthew chapter 1. And my last verse, I promise. And we'll be done. I want to learn one other thing from this or look at one other thing from this. This story of Gideon was about this deliverer, right? About, about a deliverer. And we can learn about God's. Remember the focus on God? His desire to deliver? But what, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, take thou son of David. Well, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When we read that story about Gideon, the liver, really, ultimately... The focus should be on what? God's desire to set His people free, to deliver His people. This whole Bible should just be the story Seth was talking about, how exciting they are. They are exciting because they're all pointing to this perfect Savior. When Gideon saved them and he died, what happened? They ran back. When Jesus died and He delivered us and He saves us, are we ever going to walk away from Him again? Is He going to keep us? Does Jesus have the power to keep us? And, and, and he's, it, sh, it made me, when I finished this reading it, thinking about the, just wanting to start singing songs of praise. 
Because in here I read the song, the story of God using this man to deliver his people that was still faulty because God had to use a man. But in the end, he finally came down out of heaven and said, you know what, I've been delivering my people all through the Bible with these men, and it never works perfect. He knows that. I mean, he's just doing that. That's his plan. It never works. He sent priests to come and deliver sacrifices to atone and, and to pay for the penalty of their sins. He sent deliverers. He sent prophets. He, he did all this stuff using man down through the ages. But ultimately, he gets to Matthew chapter 1, and he says, his name shall be called Jesus, which means what? Savior. Jesus the Christ. Jesus, our Savior, our Deliverer. And ultimately, God says, yeah, here's how my plan's going to work. Again, the focus is on me. These guys are great to get my people to this point, but now that we're here, it's, it's my turn. Very recently, it's become real to me in a way that it never has before. Jesus Christ wasn't the Son of God created by God. It's a, such a simple statement. But that's huge. Jesus Christ is God. He is God, who stepped out of heaven and became our perfect deliverer, set us free completely. Do you get that? That's amazing to me. So often I think of Jesus when we hear Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus, on earth. He calls her the Father, and we think of this. Jesus was this being that's kind of underneath God. And yes, as on earth we talk about this whole lineage of submission and authority, but Jesus was God. And he got to a point in, the, in, in, in history where he said, that's it, I'm done, I'm coming down. And when I read Gideon, read about this deliverer, I think about the hope that was coming in Jesus Christ stepping down out of heaven. And hopefully it will prepare us for what we're about to do. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. And let's remember that God finally said, I'm going to send my perfect deliverer, and it's going to be me. And I'm going to deliver my people forever from this oppressor. And if you want to have fun when you're taking communion today, when you remember the death of Jesus Christ, just picture in your mind the devil and his demons running around in the corner crying and stabbing each other and killing each other. I just love that thought. Because that's what the devil, that's what God did when he sent Jesus Christ, when he came down and he died.